Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Green shoots or rising risk? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Darius, welcome back. Ash, it's a pleasure to be back, man. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with the Real Vision gang. Uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Darius, it's been a minute since you and I have done one of these together. Bring me up to speed. Big picture, where are we right now? All the key variables that you track over at 42 Macro. Big picture, what's happening right now? Well, let's just hop right into the charts, my friend. So, Brian, can you throw up a slide number one, our macro weather model? Uh, this is the tool, uh, one of the primary tools we use to determine uh, how long, what asset markets are, or what asset markets are going to price in in terms of how long that's going to last and what it's likely to transition to based on the, you know, sort of the critical variables uh, in the economy that we're all trying to observe and predict. So we'll start with the left side of the table in the real economy cycles, growth trending higher. It's expected to inflect and trend low over the next 12 months. Uh, headline CPI is trending lower. It's expected to trend lower over the next 12 months, according to consensus estimates. The unemployment rate is trending higher. That's expected to trend higher over the next 12 months, although it may not. Uh, the implied sales growth rate is trending lower. The implied earnings growth rate is trending higher. Uh, the sovereign fiscal balance, uh, the, the nominal GDP ratio is trending higher. And the dollar real effective exchange rate uh, is trending higher. Transitioning to the right side of the chart, where we show the financial economy cycles within our principal components of macro, uh, we have our 42 macro net liquidity model as well as our global liquidity proxy trending higher. So those are obviously positive. Uh, despite that, credit growth, uh, both domestically and globally, is trending lower. Interest rates are trending sideways. The two-year nominal yield spread is, is continues to price in uh, 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 rate cuts, and that's trending lower. Uh, aggregated dollar positioning is neutral. Aggregated treasuries positioning is, is extreme bearish. Aggregated commodities positioning is at extreme bearish levels. And aggregated equities positioning uh, continues to be neutral. So when we, uh, when we back test the, each of these factors on an independent basis and relay those back tests back into each of those asset classes in the middle of the page on an independent basis, we're coming up with a, three, a neutral three-month for the stock market, a bullish three-month for the bond market, a neutral three-month for the U.S. dollar, a neutral three-month for commodities, and a neutral three-month for Bitcoin. And so uh, what does that mean? Neutral just means you should expect baseline type returns and baseline type volatility in that particular asset class over the next three months, whereas the bullish signals suggest you should expect higher above median returns in that asset class below median volatility. So it's still a decent time to be taking risk, albeit less bullish than it was uh, a month ago when I was last on the program. Well, there you have it. Risk asset markets neither outperforming nor underperforming, performing roughly at trend based on your analysis. Darius, one of the cool things about what you guys do at 42 uh, is that you break down all of these variables so you can give it, I guess you call it a weather forecast, right? The weather report. Absolutely. You can look at all of these different variables. You can look at them over time. You evaluate them the same way uh, week to week, month to month, so you can get consistency across them. Obviously, a lot of data that you gave us at the top of the show. That's the big picture. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. What of all of those variables or a couple of them do you see being the most salient, important, grabbed your attention either uh, for good or ill based on that report you just gave us? What, where's your focus on those? Absolutely. So my focus is always on what's changing at the margins. And if you look at the, the current signals, the thing that's changed the most at the margin or the most recently 
is the sovereign fiscal balance to nominal GDP ratio. We went from a negative trend in that particular statistic to a positive trend in that particular statistic. And so what that ultimately means is the fiscal impulse went from being positive to now it's starting to be slightly negative at the margins. That doesn't mean the budget deficit is going to, you know, uh, budget surplus, uh, but obviously we're getting less uh, budget deficits on a trending basis. And ultimately uh, that is taking some of the resiliency out of the economy vis-a-vis uh, the income support we've seen in the household sector. And it's taking some of the resiliency out of the economy at the margins vis-a-vis some of the capital investment support we've seen uh, in terms of the private sector. So uh, in terms of the corporate sector. So uh, things are, like I said, getting less bullish at the margins, but again, still not uh, in terms of uh, still not seeing anything out there that should be a big cause for concern. Jarius, for folks who don't have your macro background, break that down, explain it, talk a little bit about what the transmission mechanism you see there is and what's happening underlying. In other words, how is that becoming less bullish at the margins? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the uh, things, so uh, you obviously can't see these charts, but the, the, uh, the how the system works is it back tests excess returns and relates that excess return back onto those three month composite outlooks. And so ultimately what that ha- what happened in, in the most recent weeks when that signal inflected to positive is that we went from a positive excess return signal for things like the stock market uh, and, and things uh, to for the stock market, for instance, to a negative excess return signal from that particular variable. This is a dynamic stochastic system that allows us to, you know, sort of move forward in time without having to make independent projections for all these different principal components of macro. It just allows us to actually just accept it as is and now cast uh, what that ultimately means for asset markets. And it's, it's done a great job of helping our clients stay on the right side of market risk. So, so what's happening in that variable with regard to deficits specifically? Yeah, so the budget deficit on a trending basis is now trending higher. So we used the sovereign fiscal balance as a percent of nominal GDP had been trending lower throughout 2020, uh, throughout 2023. I'll just throw a couple of statistics at you. You know, in June of last year, the, the budget deficit was $835 billion higher than it was in June of 2022. Now that 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 incremental delta has uh, downshifted in recent quarters. In December, it was around three hundred and twenty billion dollars higher on a nominal basis. So again, the fiscal impulse is shrinking now. It's still positive, but it's shrinking, and it ultimately means the economy is getting slightly less resilient from the perspective of income support for households and from the perspective of support for capital investment uh, for the uh, corporate sector. So this is a comparison of two flow variables, Darius. You're looking at uh, the rate at which the U.S. federal government is overspending, hence deficit, relative to the amount of growth in GDP that the U.S. economy is producing. 100%, 100%. And one other flow variable, not to uh, diverge from this topic, but I think it's a very important uh, discussion we need to also have here, uh, is this bounce we've seen in productivity. So if you go back to uh, late October, early November, when we pivoted bullish, um, was you know kind of projecting uh, and expecting this uh, sort of soft landing trade to really take hold. Uh, back at the, that time frame, we got a data point, uh, one of the more important data points that I've seen in, in recent quarters, which is we finally broke back to positive growth in productivity. And the reason that's important is because historically, when product, you, you, in order to have a soft landing in the economy, you need two of three things, these three things to happen. You need sustained trend or above trend productivity growth. You need the Fed to cut interest rates and, and, and pivot and try to support a soft landing outcome with monetary policy. And you need uh, up to, uh, trend or above trend uh, um, 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 sort of government uh, expenditures and investment in the economy. We have a trend and above trend government expenditures and investment in the economy. We have an outlook for Fed monetary or for Fed rate cuts, which are already being priced in the markets, by the way. So we, we have already gotten the rate cuts, if you think about it from a financial condition standpoint. And we finally got the third shoe to drop, which is uh, above trend or above trend growth in productivity. So the probability of a soft landing has risen dramatically uh, in recent months. And obviously, asset markets have priced that in. 
But when we think about you know what the go forward outlook is uh, from the perspective of the economy, uh, we're not really seeing too many negative things on the horizon, at least not yet, that suggests uh, this current Goldilocks top-down market regime needs to transition to something more bearish. Darius, let me ask you this. You talk about what's happened in terms of financial conditions with the forward pricing of the implied or expected rate cuts. So let me ask you this. You say we've already gotten those rate cuts in terms of their impact on financial conditions. What if we get fewer rate cuts than we already got? In other words, what if the market has priced this more dovishly, more aggressively than the Fed actually follows through on? Yeah, no, 100%. I, I think that's the biggest market risk. And ultimately, I think that's something we're going to have to deal with as investors as we progress throughout 2024. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to put the trade on now, but at some point, market our market signals will tell us, hey, it's time to you know book gains in this Goldilocks trade that we call for and ultimately start to pivot to something that's more bearish. If you think about it from a distributional standpoint, uh, the high, the modal outcome of the distribution of probable economic outcomes is very clearly a soft landing, at least according uh, to our research. And we pump out 125 slides of, 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 of macroeconomic content every month in our macro scouting report. But the second most probable outcome is a no landing scenario, a scenario where growth does not slow fast enough or to a low enough level that allows inflation to drag down, um, you know, get back towards uh, 2% or thereabouts. And ultimately, we do see elements are emergent signs of sticky inflation in some of the inflation data. It's not permeating throughout the inflation data in a way that would be, you know, very obvious to the average market participant yet. But if you roll the clock for three, four, five months uh, into the summer, particularly once we get past the kind of accelerated um, deceleration that uh, many analysts, including ourselves, are expecting in shelter deceleration, uh, shelter uh, disinflation. You know, once we get into Q3, perhaps even Q4, it's going to become clear, in our opinion that there are elements of sticky inflation that are becoming more obvious to consensus. And that will be the catalyst uh, for, uh, for asset markets having to price out some of those rate cuts. But in our opinion, you don't have to rush to put that trade on because again, we're not getting market signals that are uh, confirming uh, of that just quite yet. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. All right, I got to ask you this tangential question as someone who's had to make macroeconomic slides for a living. When you say 120 slides per month, do you at least, is that the model pumping out some of those numbers for you, I hope, doing the heavy lifting? No, no, no. This is fundamental research on the economy, connecting the dots on the economy, right. which I think is my uh, core competency, uh, alongside obviously building econometric problems. When do you sleep if you have to do 120 slides of original research every month in addition to? fine-tuning the models. I, look, yeah. what's that saying? Uh, if you do what you love for a living, you never work a day in your life. And I'm definitely living that, living my dream here at 42 Macro. We're doing a lot of great work for our clients, uh, helping them maximize upside capture in, in bull markets and ultimately minimize downside capture in bear markets. And you know, we invest very differently in 42 Macro. It's a lot more systematic. Uh, it's a lot more momentum-based uh, than the average investor who's out there consistently trying to pick tops and bottoms. And at the end of the day, they're, you know, be, but be my guest, do that. We can support you with our research but ultimately we found a better mousetrap uh, that's been delivering superior results for our clients. Yeah, and once you have the framework built, I guess from there, it's 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 just doing the work, right? Once you got the model, you can be at least be consistent across quarter to quarter, month to month, week to week. Absolutely, my friend, absolutely. Let me ask you this, growth. Uh, it seems like the watchword from your recent analysis is currently resiliency. How long does that resiliency last? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it just you, you. I love the word resiliency because that kind of dovetails into our, what I think our next topic should be, which is where the resiliency or the upside surprises and growth may come from uh, in 2024. So go back to summer of 2022 when I was on this program with you and Maggie 
uh, you know, kind of espousing uh, and helping investors understand our resilient U.S. economy theme that we authored back then. Uh, and ultimately, and obviously, that was the that was the the key variable, the key theme that allowed investors to either make money in 2023 or either significantly underperform, if not lose money from getting squeezed. Uh, to the high heavens throughout 2023. So uh, that was our theme. It, it ultimately materialized in asset markets. When we look at, at where we are today here in January 2024, we have another theme uh, that we've authored and we ultimately believe may you know create some upside surprise in asset markets throughout 2024 as well. Obviously not in a linear straight line, but uh, we do believe there is upside risk to, to asset markets based on economic variables. And it has nothing to do with the U.S. economy. It has everything to do with the global economy. You know, we're seeing green shoots globally. Um, if you throw up slide two, uh, Brian, uh, we got a, a, a preliminary uh, January PMI data uh, out of the major economies this morning. Uh, and you're seeing bottoming and green shoots in places like the Eurozone. Uh, you're seeing bottoming and green shoots in places like the UK. Uh, Japan is, is, is starting to reaccelerate. Even at the bottom there, you got the global uh, PMI starting to bottom and tick higher. Now, we're not calling for a significant acceleration in economic growth. Uh, but if you look at our models in terms of our projections, uh, where we throw on slide three and slide four, Brian, you can just kind of rifle through those. You know, the major economies in the world all have a, you know, kind of 60 to 65% chance of seeing a uh, acceleration in growth over the next six to 12 months, which obviously means uh, they have, a you know, kind of a 30-ish percent chance of seeing a deceleration in growth. So, you know, we're seeing emergent signs of green shoots in the economy that can contribute to upside surprises uh, in global growth that ultimately may, you know, support asset markets vis-a-vis -vis a, a lower dollar, more global liquidity, and ultimately just better earnings, uh, outlooks, expectations, revisions, all that kind of good stuff. And there's the grid model that you can see right there on the screen that you guys are famous for doing uh, over at 42 Macro. Uh, let me just get in one more question because I know we get a ton of questions coming from our audience. Uh, and I want to ask you this uh, because it's some important themes in what you're writing about, which is inflation. Uh, and I want to ask you not just for your inflation outlook and for your characterization of where we are today, but for you to define three key phrases, immaculate disinflation, sticky inflation, and last mile, the last one of which I think is going to be an important concept uh, as we try and get from where we are now, 3.2 some odd percent down to the target. Yeah, absolutely. So immaculate disinflation is this aggressive disinflation that we've obviously observed across you know, many of the inflation statistics, uh, the most important being core PCE, super core PCE, both uh, core PCE is tracking around 2% three-month and six-month annualized. Uh, we're tracking around 2.5% or 2.6% uh, if you look at uh, three-month annualized, six-month annualized for super core PCE. So that immaculate disinflation just means uh, it shouldn't be happening based on where we are in the broader business cycle, based on where we are in the, in, in the labor market cycle. You typically, inflation is the most lagging uh, uh, a cycle within the, uh, uh, the, within the economy. Um, you typically breaks down you know, multiple quarters after a recession begins. So the fact that we've seen so much disinflation almost back to target uh, with respect to core PCE suggests that you know, it's, it's essentially mana from the heavens. And this is why asset, well, one of the many reasons uh, why asset markets um, outperformed uh, most investor expectations last year. Um, when we talk about sticky inflation, as I mentioned, there are sign, emergent signs of sticky inflation. If you look at things like the three-month annualized rate of change of super core CPI, median CPI, trimming CPI, those numbers are all in the 3.5 to 4 ish percent uh, range still, and, and, and more importantly, not continuing to decelerate uh, in our opinion. So that's suggesting to me that you know what we know about inflation, at least historically, that it tends to break down well after a recession begins. Uh, you know, the, 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 we're starting to see some stasis and some stickiness in inflation that suggests some of these broader, more uh, uh, well-observed measures of inflation may not continue that immaculate process. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, in terms of that last mile, that's what we mean by the last mile: is that hey, you know, we've gotten a lot of good news on inflation, but right. at some point, if we're if, if you know if if if, if, uh, if history proves correct 
uh, and, and the models prove correct, we're probably going to no land on inflation relative to where the Fed's targets are relative to where consensus has uh, inflation projection. But again, in my opinion, it's a negative risk factor for markets. We just don't necessarily believe you need to put that trade on today like most folks would, would, would otherwise have you do. Hey, Terrence, let me ask you one follow-up, and this is a real big picture question. Maybe it shows that I'm obviously not following this as closely as you are. Uh, but my question for you is this. Do you ever wonder, worry about, wonder about or worry about the predictive power of uh, the models for inflation when what we've seen here is so completely unprecedented, so completely off the charts? It's like CPI, PCE, uh, PPI, whatever chart you look like, it's like the Angry Birds chart. It's literally like this parabola. It goes up and then it crashes down. I mean, it's something that we've never seen before. We've never seen a model uh, that has, you know, this kind of gyration in it in terms of the data set getting just pushed around. Is there some risk of hysteresis, some risk of the predictive power of historical models not playing along because the data set that we've seen historically is just so completely off the charts? Ash, you absolutely nailed it. And this is why our entire investment process has pivoted for, for, for better towards an observation and momentum-based process whereby we're trying to take advantage of, of momentum in key economic variables and ultimately take advantage of momentum in, in asset markets with our positions and portfolio construction. We used to, when I started the firm and for most of my 15-year career on Global Wall Street, would base my entire portfolio construction and asset allocation recommendations on my predictions. Where do I think inflation is going to be? Where do I think growth is going to be? Uh, what do I think the Fed or policy is going to do uh, at, at some you know, time horizon? And therefore, let me put on trades today. In our opinion, this, that, that process there, this positioning for, position, or for, uh, for predictions, in my opinion, that's the number one reason uh, most investors have significantly underperformed asset markets over the last two and three years. And it goes back to what you just said, Ash. Most models, if you think about how investors and economists uh, forecast growth, forecast inflation, they fall into one or two camps. They're a DSG model or they're an autoregressive model. Both of those models broke substantially in the COVID, in the COVID area. Uh, obviously, we had the shutdown and lockdown of the economy that created a lot of volatility uh, in the base rates in the time series. But we also had significant fiscal and monetary stimulus that created a lot of additional volatility on the base rates for some of these models. So this is why so many economists were wrong-footed, so many investors were wrong-footed on thinking about growth uh, or thinking about you know calling for a recession last year. Uh, this is why so many economists and investors missed the surge in inflation uh, going back to 2021 and 2022. It's because they're using broken models and broken tools, and ultimately their entire investment process is, is being is anchored to those broken models and broken tools. Right. That's why we've pivoted at 42 Macro to things like the weather model, which are more observational tools, things like our global macro risk matrix, which now casts a top-down market regime. It's more observational rather than predictive, and it's done us a great job in terms of helping us stay on the right side of market risk. Yeah, and of course, you look at some high-frequency variables that give you the ability to do things in real time. 100%, my friend. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Yeah, totally. All right, Darius, as you know, you're a superstar here at Real Vision. So we literally have almost a, a full page of questions uh, coming in, in in the first 15 minutes of this show alone. So before we do that, let me just ask you, any other charts you want to get to before we jump in and start taking your- uh, We can just rifle through them. Uh, Brian, if you could rifle through slides five, six, seven, and eight, uh, where we show uh, growth expectations uh, for the United States, for the Eurozone, for China and Japan. And what I circled on those charts, uh, each of those charts is uh, the, uh, the growth estimates over the next one, two, perhaps three quarters. And you see for each of these major economies, we're talking about like zero to 1% growth per quarter over the next, you know, kind of um, over the next uh, uh, two to three quarters. And so in our opinion, we think the hurdle for upside surprises 
to global growth and, and including the, including the U.S. Uh, is actually quite high, or it's actually the hurdle is low. The probability of seeing uh, upside surprises and growth in one in one H twenty twenty four uh, is actually quite high. Um, so in our opinion, I think that again represents an upside risk to asset markets because again you still have let investors who are using those broken models, you know, and positioning for those broke uh, for the output of those broken models. They're still in the hard landing camp, and then some of them are still in the no landing camp, and they may be forced to chase the soft landing camp higher, particularly if we get through the next two weeks of data points. We got a lot of uh, data points. Uh, coming over the next two weeks, not the least of which is that productivity discussion we had, uh, non-unit labor costs, the employment cost index, obviously the jobs reports coming as well, GDPs tomorrow, uh, PCEs on Friday. So if we can get through the next couple of weeks of critical economic updates and not, oh, I forgot the, the quarterly refunding announcement uh, next week as well. But we get through all that and we're still in Goldilocks, people in the no landing camp, people in the hard landing camp will be forced to capitulate uh, in a way that they probably never had done in their careers. And in terms of the no landing camp, they'll be forced to capitulate because of central bank activity restricting uh, monetary policy and therefore tightening financial conditions, a rebound effect. Bad news. Yeah. Good news is bad news. No, it, it does. Uh, not, not quite that. More in the sense that they're just not receiving any confirmation from the observed data in the economy that suggests their positions are going to be right. And oh, if it's, if it stays gold markets locks. are moving away from those right. positions. So if it stays Goldilocks, in other words, you don't see too much over here. If we can get to mid-February, if we can get to the set through the, the second, the first or second week of February, and we're still in Goldilocks, there's pretty there's a very clear runway for Goldilocks to persist uh, well into the spring. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Interesting, really interesting stuff. I uh, always enjoy talking about these models. They're really cool. Uh, with that said, you ready to jump in, take some viewer questions? Always, my friend. Always. I'm on, I'm the high dive. <laughs> All right. First one, uh, Darius, how liquidity injection by the PBOC, People's Bank of China, would impact global liquidity? And could it be inflationary? Shifting gears here, obviously, from the U.S. to China. Any thoughts on PBOC liquidity injections? Oh, uh, so, yes. Uh, so the PBOC, I want to say they've authorized a... Uh, 50 basis point triple R cut that's going to unleash about, uh, uh, you know, somewhere around $200 billion thereabouts uh, into the Chinese financial sector. So that's obviously a, a positive risk factor for global liquidity uh, from the perspective of the fungibility of, of money across borders. Um, China's a closed capital account, but they still find ways uh, to get that money off, off borders, not the least of which, if there's money growing faster in China, faster than, than they are overseas, you typically see overseas retained earnings, which inflate the, the global liquidity proxy uh, there. Um, what was the second half of the question? Uh, I think it was just about what's the uh, do you see liquidity injection from PBOC and what's the impact? Uh, could it be inflationary globally? Uh, yes, it could be, but uh, typically it's not. You know, what causes inflation? I mean, <laughs> that's a loaded statement. <laughs> Economists have really no clue what causes inflation, but we think we know. We sorry, we know what's correlated and co-integrated with inflation. And the things that are correlated and co-integrated with inflation, liquidity is not necessarily one of those variables. It's highly co-integrated and correlated with asset market performance, but it typically is not correlated with the real economy outcomes. So, um, you know, it can be, but it, it's unlikely to be because what we found, um, you know, when we uh, this is you know going back a few years ago uh, when we you know we outlined the the structural liquidity trap that China uh, is in and had it reopened into. Uh, um, you know, one of those uh, elements of that structural liquidity trap is understanding that the Chinese current account and all the flows that China used to get from its current account have dwindled. And as a function of that, the growth of the PBOC's balance sheet has primarily come from, you know, monetary, you know, type, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, tactics, you know, lowering the triple R, things of that nature, and, and, and asset purchases. And because of that, the renminbi uh, has become uh, kind of, you know, at, at, it's really become, you know, at risk 
uh, from all that uh, incremental monetary stimulus. And so in our opinion, if China really steps on the liquidity spigot, it's more likely to see a, a significant, uh, we're more likely to see a significant decline on the Chinese yuan uh, that would obviously be disinflationary for, for the global economy. Uh, and I should have said, by the way, that comes from the macro butler, that question, in case I didn't say it uh, at the top. So Darius, RRR, this is reserve rate requirement. This is the primary monetary policy tool the PBOC uses kind of like our uh, federal funds rate. Different uh, well, mechanism, but similar similar impact in terms of creating liquidity. Or yeah, I, I don't want to say primary because they have a mixed bag. They have a big bag of tools that they use at any given time. You know, you got the triple R, you got the prime rates, um, you have the obviously the balance sheet itself. Um, you have the, uh, the China uses administrative tools to force banks into lending credit for to uh, specific uh, sectors of the economy. You know, there's a lot of stuff that they do and have done in recent quarters. The problem with the China as it relates to the Chinese economy is there's obviously just a structural oversupply uh, mechanism in terms of the capital side of the economy and obviously the, the, the property side of the economy, which is roughly 30% of GDP. And they have nearly not done anything to address that structurally in terms of fixing what all, all the ails there. You're still obviously observing deflation there. So, Next question comes from Roger Bose. Should I take some uranium profits here? Obviously, we should say not personal financial advice, but broadly, what do you think about the price of uranium? I actually have not paid attention to uranium, so I don't want to give a, a BS answer out of the, out of my neck here. So we'll, we'll skip that one. Sorry about it. Sorry about it. Always appreciate that. Uh, J&J LTD, does Darius have a view on RRP and BTFP ending? Obviously, this is reverse repo rate bank term facility program. This is one of the lending programs to support uh, the broader macro economy. Darius, thoughts? 100%. I have a view on that. That everyone, everyone and their brother, sister's uncle has a view on it. And they think it's going to be a bearish factor for markets. So I'm going to take the other side of the trade. <laughs> that's 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 my view. Obviously, it's not a good thing for for from a liquidity standpoint. But we have to forget, you know, liquidity is not just the BTFP, the reverse super facility, the Treasury General Account. Liquidity is this broad global thing with many moving parts and many many um you know kind of fungible dynamics that you know could obviously offset that at the margins. Uh, we're not making a call that it's going to offset it, that's offset that, but it certainly can be offset if you're seeing you know the PBOC China they're launching a two to three hundred billion dollar uh, triple R cut. Uh, in February, which obviously can offset that uh, at the margin. So uh, it's our view that, you know, this is a tired kind of topic that I think has kind of been bastardized across, you know, global Wall Street, which is, you know, basically Twitter now. Uh, and so uh, we would take the other side of the, the, the trade because clearly, um, you know, there's still some some dry powder from the perspective of the reverse super facility balance. There's definitely some dry powder from the perspective of the Treasury General account balance. And oh, by the way, we're in a general election year Neither the Fed nor the Treasury Department wants to do anything good or bad to upset the apple cart. Um, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of um, you know creating negative outcomes for financial markets, or in, in so much just creating two positive outcomes uh, in financial markets. So, in our opinion, we think uh, a lot of this hullabaloo uh, around the ending of the BTFP might just be that. We got a question about that, and I think we're going to end on it because it's such a good question. Uh, next question comes to us from Stephen Warall. Hi, Ash and Darius. I hope you're both doing well. DD, any thoughts on the BOC, Bank of Canada, discussion to hold rates today? Do you think they will wait for the Fed to lead? Any thoughts on the Canadian economy? Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Oh, yeah. So the Canadian economy is, is doing, it's, it's kind of like most of the global economy where it looks like it's bottoming and basing uh, and starting to accelerate. And, and, those, and those earnings, um, or sorry, not earnings, and those growth expectations in Canada are actually quite uh, low as well. If you look at our uh, grid model projections, Canada has about a two-thirds chance of an acceleration in growth uh, over the next uh, 12 months, and inflation should be pretty stable uh, over the next six to 12 months as well. So, you know, this is one of those places where, you know, I think the markets are telling you exactly what they should be telling you right now, which is you should be expecting better than expected news 
globally from the perspective of global growth, certainly relative where we've been over the past kind of, you know, four to six quarters. Next question, Bo Nito, Darius, China is in the tank. How can we be optimistic moving forward when the number one global exporter is so weak, Bo asks. Yeah, that's uh, Bo, I, my friend, Bo, my friend. That sounds like a terrible back test, my friend. Just pull up the chart of the S&P and then put and overlay that with the chart of the Shanghai Composite. Look, it's it's not a it's not the driver uh, that the narrative implies it is. Uh, mm. Obviously, you know there was many uh, you know for many years of my career, um, China was this big driver of global incremental global demand, particularly on the commodity side. Uh, but that all kind of stopped in you know the early uh, 2010s. Uh, China hasn't really been uh, this big driver of global de incremental demand. You know what the big driver of incremental global demand is? It's right here in the United States of America, baby. You know, we got Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, CHIPS Act, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, uh, oh, uh, you're home because of COVID? Here, here's, here's like a thousand bucks. You know, that's where the incremental demand uh, of the global economy is coming from, uh, in our opinion. And a lot of the accumulated savings from a stock perspective uh, that we see on the household uh, and corporate balance sheets is still there. You're talking about four trillion, four plus trillion uh, on the household uh, side in terms of checkable deposits and currency. You're talking about two plus uh, to over two trillion of checkable deposits and currency on the corporate sector balance sheet. Both of those numbers are roughly five percent of total assets. That five percent ratio for each of those, respectively, is the highest ratio we've seen in either time series uh, since going back to the mid 1950s. So we're flush with cash and can continue to spend, can continue to invest. So when you think about where the incremental demand for the global economy is going to come from. You got to think about it from right here from the perspective of the U.S. All right, Darius, after a series of international questions, here's one about the good old U.S. of A. Comes just from G. Blackburn. Uh, and the question is, are small caps dead? And I'd like to add a, a point on that. Uh, are small caps dead from G. Blackburn? But also, does it scare the hell out of you to see this kind of concentration in the Magnificent Seven and check tech stocks more generally? Yes and no. Um, you know, markets go through periods where they're extremely concentrated and they go through periods where they're obviously uh, not so concentrated. Obviously, the higher nominal GDP environments for the global economy tend to, you know, create a little bit more, uh, a little bit less dispersion uh, in terms of concentration. And, and when you have, you know, lower nominal GDP environments globally or you have significant U.S. outperformance, we tend to see uh, more dispersion, more concentration. So I'm not concerned about it as a market risk factor. Um, you know, just by the way, just Go back and look at 2023. Was concentration a bad thing? No, you want it to be concentrated. You want it to take advantage of some of those trends, the resilient U.S. economy, immaculate disinflation, uh, the, obviously the, the uptrend in global liquidity and domestic liquidity that uh, we called for. So, you know, the, you know, it's it's some of these things. I, I love the I love getting on Real Vision and answering these questions because, you know, I hear that they're coming from a place of narrative. And the reality is there's nothing wrong with being a narrative driven investor. I just think it's a harder thing to do consistently well than yeah. actually adhering to uh, what's actually happening in the economy, being Bayesian about that six days a week like we are here at 42 Macro. Yeah, so interesting. Such an interesting point. Uh, Jason Yoakum, Darius, which is a larger factor that could weigh on the Fed's decision to cut rates, increased volatility in the Middle East, Ukraine, et cetera, that might push commodity prices higher and in turn inflation, or, or reduced domestic and global productivity that damages the prob probability uh, of a soft landing. Boy, this is such a great question, Darius, because um, I just don't see any macro headwinds from uh, global geopolitics being priced into anything. No, it's because it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's obviously a really unfortunate situation what's going on over there. But from the perspective of the global economy, from the perspective of asset markets, it really has not had material impact. 
Uh, now, it may eventually have material impact, but obviously thus far uh, it is not. In terms of specifically answering the question, if you wanted to do a uh, probability assessment of which one will matter more to the Fed's decision-making process, productivity potentially slowing and you know creating uh, more pro uh, pressure on corporate margins that may force them to uh, accelerate uh, cost increases, or what's going on in the Middle East and potentially accelerating commodity prices, I'd say that's probably a 99% versus a 1%. You know, the Fed is focused on these, you know, you know, very, you know, kind of a core first principles econometric dynamics. Uh, and the reality is one of the reasons why that productivity data point that we got in late October caused me to go, oh, I think it's time for a soft landing trade. The reason it caused me to do that, us to do that at 42 macro, is because when you have higher productivity, you can sustain higher levels of wage growth without creating margin pressure for corporate America. What does that do? That means there's less pressure on corporates to fire people, and there's less pressure on corporates to raise prices as a function of that, of that higher productivity environment. And as a, I know, so you know, we can obviously share charts on that uh, next time I'm on. But you know, the reality is this is why asset markets are. You know, if you look at the S&P, for example, at an all-time high. You know, if you don't understand those kind of you know first principles, core macroeconomic fundamentals, you probably should partner with somebody that does. Here's a great question and a really interesting one that comes to us from Kirk. What do you use or focus on for sentiment readings, to which I would add, if at all? Or is that something that interests you or not? No, we it's six, not just days, model. six days a week, we update our positioning model uh, at, at 42 Macro. So uh, we, we use a variety of indicators uh, to focus on sentiment. So uh, I'll just kind of list them. Uh, we look at yeah. non-commercial net length as a percent of total open interest across the four major asset classes. So uh, stocks, uh, 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 fixed income, uh, dollar and commodities. Uh, we look at the uh, growth rate. Of, of, of cash in terms of money market fund exposure. Uh, that has just uh, historically been a good sentiment indicator. Uh, we look at the AAI bulls bear survey and the spread between those uh, particular surveys. We look at the AAI uh, allocations, stock bond cash allocations. We look at uh, trends and realized volatility as a proxy uh, for uh, systematic investor positioning. And then we look at uh, market uh, valuations too as, a, as an obvious um, you know, kind of sentiment-based uh, indicator. And so uh, we're refreshing our positioning model on a daily basis. And one of those um, positioning model signals that helped us kind of you know, orchestrate this soft landing trade back at the beginning of November uh, was we saw a ninth percentile reading uh, in the AAI bulls bear spread relative to its historical time series. That matched the median reading that we've observed at all the major market troughs going back to December 1987. You know, December 1987, October 90, September 98, March 03, March 09, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through October 22. We got to the same level in terms of that AI bulls bear spread. So it was an obvious signal to us because we are refreshing that model six days a week on a Bayesian uh, basis. Uh, it's, it was stuck out like a sore thumb and allowed us to pivot, uh, you know, alongside that the positive quarter of funding announcement we got that week, the positive productivity data point we got that week, and ultimately the positive uh, surprise we got out of the Bank of Japan that week. So that was quite the week. But if you're not if you're not sitting here being Bayesian six days a week, uh, we highly suggest you partner with someone that is. Great question from Kirk, and uh, obviously a great and highly detailed answer there, uh, the individual inputs. Uh, final question for you. This one comes from Roger B. I saved this one for last, Darius. It's it's seven words long. It's an incredibly short question, uh, but boy, profound implication in it. Roger wants to know, does DD think the Fed is independent? Ooh, we can, I'd rather have some beers over that one, but uh, <laughs> uh, yes and no. Um, yes and no, right? I, I think they don't want to be truly independent because ultimately at the end of the day, the, I, I genuinely believe in their heart of hearts that institution wants to produce positive economic outcomes for America. They want maximum employment, they want stable prices, and they're working like hell to do that. I know plenty of people that work at the Fed, you know, we, you know I, don't, I can't confirm or deny if we, we meet with them, 
Uh, but that's, uh, you know, I, th I think those people definitely want good outcomes for the, for the economy. And with respect to independence, I think they are working with other agencies like the Treasury or the, uh, what's the, 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 the one that bails out the banks? <laughs> Sorry, I'm blanking on the, the name. FDIC. Um, FDIC. I think they do work with those institutions, uh, you know, the federal home loan banks, et cetera, to try to produce those positive outcomes. So technically they're not independent, but I think they're not independent from the perspective of they're actually looking to produce good outcomes and not to, uh, not to pull strings in, in a nefarious manner, which I think a lot of people on Twitter think they are. Yeah, very, uh, very well said. Where data meets conspiracy theories. <laughs> well, look, man, Ash, even a question like this, if we can wrap up on this, it's our job to make and save money in financial markets. It's not our job to pontificate about society, about the Fed, about this, about that. If you're not doing, if what you're doing when you wake up and open your account or you open your client's account as, a, as an institutional investor, if you're not making and saving them money, you're wasting time. Go work out, go, you know, go hang out with your family. That's probably a better use of time than talking about things like this. No offense. And, and boy, by the way, are we ever uh, going to get into this in the next nine months here uh, with oh. the election coming up? Because, you know, look, that's what we're doing here at Real Vision. We're not, uh, everybody's got an opinion, everybody's got a view, but at the end of the day, what matters is what's the impact on markets, on risk asset prices, on the economy, on your portfolio. And that's what we're here to talk about, right? 100%. And go back and just look, and by the way, the last thing I'll say, go back and look at the last few election cycles. The Fed was doing a lot, every single one of them. In 2020, they were doing a lot. In 2018, they were doing a lot. In 2016, we got the Shanghai Accord. Uh, what did we get in 2012? Uh, we, actually, no, we got QE3 in 2012. In 2008, we got you know, ZERP and, and QE1. So every time there's an election, the Fed is busy in both directions. So we can't assume that because there's an election, the Fed's not going to cut interest rates according to what markets are priced in. Yeah. Darius, you hit it out of the park, as you always do. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate the Real Real Vision Gang. Great questions. I always love being here. It's uh, looking forward to next time. Thanks, Darius. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Before we go, RV is giving away free NFTs for all new Real Vision members. The pre-mint is open right now. The mint opens on January 25 and runs through February 1st. To be eligible for the mint, you have to open a freemium account. On top of that, you get access to our new platform. So head to realvision.com forward slash RVNFT. That's realvision.com RV forward slash RVNFT and sign up. Thanks so much for watching or listening to Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. See you then, everybody. Have a great night. Hey, everybody. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code RealVision.